Greetings, everyone. Today, we're going to continue our history of the church through the Middle Ages. And now we're going to shift back to uh, Western Christendom and see what's going on after uh, the fall of Charlemagne's empire um, and with the attacks on by the Magyars and the Vikings. So with this uh, with this lecture, we're going to look at really the major reform movements that appeared in the uh, the 10th and 11th centuries that really shaped the transformation of of the church and the papacy into the form that we somewhat know it as today. It's still going through a, a transforming process, but this is the major step forward in the accumulation of power and authority by the papacy. So where we left off last time, uh, we talked about that different Vikings, Norsemen, uh, were raiding and pillaging across uh, Western Europe and France, Germany, Spain, England, Ireland, and many other places. Uh, these Norsemen attacks um, eventually began to uh, recede, uh, and then eventually more and more of uh, these Norsemen began to convert to Christianity. And some specifics, for example, uh, the Danes who settled into England, formed Daneland in central England, uh, were uh, defeated by King Alfred the Great, the leader of the, the Wessex, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, and the kind of the unifier of England, and in the peace deal, he had the Danes convert over to Christianity. Alfred the Great is kind of one of those uh, heroic figures of this time period. Um, he was known for his uh, piety, um, his quality of mind and spirit. Uh, he was devoted to uh, the liturgy and memorized the Psalms. Um, he viewed himself as kind of the guardian of Christian civilization. Um, and a promoter of English culture, English Christian culture as well. So he's one of those famous faker, figures who uh, played a role uh, in spreading Christian culture in England. We also see the Christianization of the Scandinavian countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, and Finland. Each one has their own process of conversion, whether, you know, some levels of resistance and, and different levels of acceptance. So like, for example, in Iceland, um, becomes Christian democratically. Uh, in Finland, they invite uh, Eastern Orthodox missions and Western Catholic missions and ultimately decide for the Western Catholic tradition. So there's different elements of how they come over to uh, becoming a Christian nation. Um, in Central Europe, there's the expansion of, of Christianity into Central Europe. Uh, for example, with the Magyars, who are a nomadic people, that uh, threatened the kingdom of Germany uh, through the raids and attacks. Um, they were repulsed, uh, repulsed by uh, uh, Otto the Great, and the Magyars settled into Hungary and eventually converted over to Christianity. The Poles and the Bohemians eventually came over to becoming Christian nations, um, and finally the Croats themselves. The Croats, what's interesting, and we'll look at in a later lecture, is that they settle near Serbia, and the Croats uh, move to supporting the Western Catholic tradition. And this kind of comes into conflict with the Serbs later on because the Serbs are part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And so even though the Croats and the Serbs are ethnically and linguistically very close, they are they have two different religious traditions, and this will cause um, a, some turmoil in the kingdom of Serbia later on in their history. Now, because of these different attacks, and like I said uh, two lectures ago, in the ninth century, in the, the end of the 9th century, beginning of the 10th century, what we have is kind of a very uh, period of, of decline 
One is you have external attacks with the Vikings, the Magyars, um, Muslim advance in Sicily and Spain. So you have aggressive external issues attacking uh, Western Christendom and, and the remains of Charlemagne's empire. But you also have eternal decline and eternal issues as the kingdom fractures into different groups. There's warfare and infighting as well taking place. So there are internal and external problems. So in this time period, in the late 9th and early 10th century, you saw a rapid decline of monasteries. The quality of leadership in the church also declines. There's a decline in education once again after the resurgence with the Carlinian Renaissance. Um, but what holds Christian society together, though, is this partnership and working together with the church, the monasteries, and the mon- different monarchies in Europe that kind of keeps it all together. More particularly, looking at uh, the Germanic kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Germany in the east, uh, it was broken apart into six tribal states, uh, but was reunited together under the authority of King Otto the Great, who played a role in uh, repulsing, like I said, the Magyar forces. And with that great victory, he was crowned by Pope John XII as the Holy Roman Emperor in 962. Now, King Otto saw it as his uh, spiritual and political duty to guide and lead Christendom. He saw it as kind of his sacred kingship, that he had the right to, uh, much like like Charlemagne and much like Constantine, to control and dictate the affairs of the church and utilize the German church for his kingdom. Um, So he would appoint bishops into uh, positions of political power and authority uh, in his kingdom. And it makes sense because, one, they're well-educated, and two... Uh, by appointing these bishops um, who are celibate, they wouldn't pass on their offices and lands that come with that position to their children. So you see the uh, use of the German church to help govern um, the affairs of the kingdom. Now, in this time period, too, we see the rise of a new social order called feudalism. Um, feudalism is a, a, a unique social structure, an, econo- an economic and political and social structure. Uh, with with a different series of vassals and lords in their relationship. And so what happens is, is that land becomes uh, the primary means of economic and military power. Uh, if you control most lands, you control the farming and the quality of whatever is produced on the lands, you control the people on those lands. So therefore you have uh, either a capable fighting force Uh, a very large economic force. And so you dictate a lot of influence by the lands that you control. And so feudalism and the rise of these powerful landowning aristocracy actually itself will tie in with the church. Now, feudalism appears uh, a couple hundred years earlier. Uh, Some dictate with Charles Martel, with him granting land to his knights with the most, uh, you know, the land, the knights with the most land forming that major landowning aristocracy and the minor knights, uh, with the smaller pieces of land, building a manor, kind of like a little small castle manor, with the surrounding land worked by the peasant serfs. Uh, but, you know, it's debated. Feudalism is once again kind of going through a revision of whether or not it actually existed and how we understand it. So there is a debate about it today. But nonetheless, feudalism and its, and its organization and structure also plays a role in affecting uh, the authority, the structure of the church, and transforming the church as well. So, feudalism's impact on the church. Now, a local lord has the authority and the power to build a church or a monastery on their lands. Um, in a sense, a gift 
from the local lord to have this church or to have this monastery built. Um, they don't; they're not forced to do so, but they do so for different reasons. Uh, one is a spiritual gift in the sense of doing, if I, you know, giving to God, you know, and having the monks or the clergy pray for the local lord. It only enhances their prestige as well. Um, in other ways, too, it helps get rid of um, uh, lingering children. So, for example, you know, the firstborn son gets the land and the titles of the local lord. The secondborn son might go work for uh, a priest, might join a church. If you build a monastery on your land, for example, you might be able to put your third or fourth son in the monastery to manage the affairs uh, of that of that abbey or that monastery on your property. So it it only helps you to have this property built. One, it's also real estate value. That if you build monasteries on your land, they they can produce, um, you know, they run their own lands. They become self sufficient. It's kind of like uh, it, you're planning for your retirement, so to speak. When eventually you're kind of kicked out as the local lord, you can retire to that monastery. Um, and so there is economic benefits tied to it as well. But primarily, the landowners. Uh, gave up property to help build these churches or monasteries. Now, what's interesting, too, is that when they gave it up, uh, give up this land and have this church built, they now played a role in the choice of the bishop or or any other clergy members being, or in a sense, monasteries of any abbots being chosen for leadership. Um, so we see here a transformation where in the early church, it was a congregation that chose the chose the leader of the church, chose the bishop. Um, and then eventually over time, that became uh, the congregation mixed with maybe other bishops who uh, who would ordain that particular bishop to that role. Um, and then with the, the late Roman Empire and Constantine, we see the Roman emperors playing a role, um, electing certain bishops to certain offices and different, different sees. Um, so we see a kind of constant changing and lack of lack of involvement from the congregation in the appointment of these bishops and now so now the power falls to the local lords in appointing bishops and priests and abbots to these churches and monasteries that they're having built on nearby lands or property that they own so this is what we call lay investiture it's the laity the the common people the non-clergy investing power and authority to these uh clergy members and this will play an important role later on in this lecture because it becomes a point of controversy. Who, who should hold the power of appointing clergymen? Who should have the role of appointing these leaders in the church? Should it be the people? Should it be the lords? Should it be the church itself? Who has the right and authority to do so? And it becomes a center point of conflict later on. One of the first reform movements to appear that helps uh uh, push Europe uh, into the true, the high Middle Ages, so to speak, the high point of medieval life and culture, is the Cluniac revival or the Cluniac reform movements. It's centered around a monastery in the 10th century, uh, the monastery of Cluny, which unfortunately, if you go to Cluny today, the monastery of Cluny has been, was destroyed during the French Revolution. Um, it was torn apart piece to piece. There are some subsections of the wall that remains. The monastery that exists is not the same monastery that you see in this image above. Um, it's been completely destroyed and removed. Uh, the monastery of, at Cluny is important because it it's some of the one some of the institutions it establishes creates the monastic uh, movements that we see later today. The first thing that we creates is the monastic order. Prior to this, 
all monasteries that existed in the West were, were not tied to orders. They were the kind of their own individual enterprises. Uh, think of their own individual corporations. They had, they were just, they managed their own lands and their own properties. They didn't really have authority over another monastery. And they all followed the same, the same rule of St. Benedict. Uh, but at Cluny, what happens is that they're given uh, by the power of the Pope, Pope John the Eleventh, um, authority to acquire other monasteries in existence, but also to establish new monasteries. So they create these orders, and so this whole structure, and they appoint priors as second command to manage uh, these other monasteries to make sure that they're following the liturgical practices. There's not really a much of a change in the liturgy. It still follows the rules of St. Benedict. It allows for a more uh, increased focus on the asceticism while also managing the lands and the affairs of the property. Peasants can be invited onto those lands to work the lands of the monastery, um, though they are required to you know, perform additional spiritual tasks as well. Um, and one of the things that the Cluniac reform does uh, that's significant too is that it it has this innocence, a zeal uh, to purify the monastic movement and the church as a whole. Prior to this, uh, especially during the times of conflict, like I said, local lords would kind of dump the third and fourth, fifth sons into these monasteries and their daughters too into uh, convents um, only because, you know, you didn't want to split up all your property, nor did you want to have infighting later on when you're too old and the children are too young and they're trying to split up the land and therefore decrease your authority and wealth and power. So with these younger children, you dump them off in these monasteries. Now, these these kids get an education and you hope they, they get raised up to become an abbot or an abbess um, and therefore help manage the, the affairs of that monastery. But they also are known for their aristocratic lifestyle, so they, they continue the falconry and hunting and the drinking and the lewdness. And so during prior to the Cluniac reform, these monasteries, quality and the, the zeal and purity um, and following the Christian lifestyle declined significantly. Uh, but with the Cluniac reforms that begins to shift, there's a demand, there's um, uh, councils that are conducted. Uh, and so what happens is there's overall collective sense of making sure that they follow the particular uh, Christian lifestyle, maintaining that monastic uh, uh, order and desire. Now, Cluny is important, too, not only in restructuring the way monastic uh, orders are created and how they're run, because from now on, there's going to be monastic orders. You know, you'll have this assertion order we'll look at later and the mendicant orders later, like the Dominicans and Franciscans. So we're going to see these orders as be created and established. But also what Cluny does is begins to influence the not only just the lower classes and the peasants, but also the upper class. Um, because now with the aristocrats sending their children to receive an education. You can you can send your kids for a short time to kind of be a novice within these monasteries to receive a basic form of education. They are also receiving the Christian ideals, the, that Christendom in itself permeates through all political divisions. And so these aristocratic youth that are coming back to the to the lords and to and to living the lifestyle with their fathers and such. And with the affairs of being a vassal or being a local lord and such, they're bringing those Christian ideals back with them. And so one of the things that's brought back with them is the idea of sacred kingship, where the king, in a sense, has the divine right and the authority to dictate the affairs of the church. And so we see that being brought back in 
uh, into uh, the the governmental structures across Western Europe. So with this reform of monastic life, there's a sense of renewal that's taking place, Christian renewal across the 10th century, um, because you start seeing extensive buildings being done, monasteries being built, especially Cluny is known also for its pilgrimage route uh, to an um, important pilgrimage site in Spain. So there's this sense of renewal taking place and transformation taking place uh, with the reform of the monastic life, the beginning of the cult, renewal of the cult of the saints as well. All this plays a role in establishing that, and it will tie in itself with the papal reforms that we're going to see here next. So prior to this, um, the papacy uh, in that 8th and 9th century was really, in 10th century, was really suffering from spiritual degradation and lawlessness. Um, the papacy, you know, we have the modern understanding of the Pope and the authority that the Pope have from has from our understanding of or interactions with the Roman Catholic Church. It was not the same as we see it here in the, the ninth, 10th centuries. The, the power of the papacy was, was respected, but limited in a sense that the papacy didn't was kind of toothless in its real authority and power. It didn't have any means to really enforce what it wanted on the kings of Europe. It had to rely on these different kingdoms. So, for example, um, the popes relying on Charlemagne for military protection, crowning him Holy Rem Roman Emperor. They disagreed on um, different issues regarding, uh, you know, the iconoclast controversy or the filioque clause. They might come into conflict with Charlemagne on those issues, whether theological or political. But the papacy didn't have the means and the authority to oppose those secular rulers, as well as enforce uh, its rules on different bishops. Because a big problem uh, across the uh, the church for what the Roman the the bishop of Rome saw was a big problem was celibacy, that these bishops were still being married even while they were ordained or having mistresses, um, and so they had a problem managing their authority over these bishops. The bishop of Rome was respected for its authority, but it wasn't really, it didn't have any power to enforce its own rules across Western Christendom. But we're going to see that change here with this reform movement. So the papacy itself too was in the hands of the Roman aristocrats. Um, this idea of the uh, different cardinals choosing a Pope doesn't come into existence just yet. It will hear shortly, but at the time it was these different Roman noble families who would choose and infight uh, over who's going to be the next Bishop of Rome and it was quick successions with a lot of different problems. And at one point, you had three different popes fighting for authority over the seat in Rome. It took Emperor Henry III, who was actually trained through one of the Cluniac reforms um, as a young boy, to depose all three bishops of Rome, all three popes, and appoint his own, Pope Clement II, um, as the head, as the new pope and the new bishop of Rome, which once again shows that there is an understanding and acceptance that the kings and the emperors in the West have the power and authority to appoint even the popes, um, that they play a significant role. And of course, those the reform, Cluniac reform movement, and the Christian ideal is going to is going to play a role in kind of counterbalancing that too. So now we're going to see reforming uh, bishops and popes come in who want to stave off that kind of influence. And these reformers, it's either known as the Hildebrandine reformers or the Gregorian reformers in the 11th century, want to uh, turn, the tie, turn the tide back 
against the power and authority of these kings and emperors over the Bishop of Rome. So, for example, you have many different reformers. You had Leo the, the Ninth, you had Cardinal Humbert, who was played a role in the Great Schism of 1054. You had Bishop Damiani, who uh, uh, played a role in the development of self-flagellation, whipping yourself. Uh, and it, not that it was not that he started it, but he organized it, ritualized it. So that way, by the 13th and 14th century, it becomes extremely popular. Um, but the most critical figure um, of the reformers is Hildebrand. Uh, Hildebrand um, is uh, is the name that, you know, like I said, Hildebrandine reformers or, or Gregorian reformers. It's all tied to that individual. Now, the purpose of these reformers, like I said, was to create, in a sense, the papacy free of political control. They wanted to have the church independent of these political authorities, these secular rulers. They, the church was supposed to be supreme above and beyond the authority of these secular rulers. In the same time, too, not only reforming the authority, but also reforming the institution as a whole, they demanded high moral standards across uh, the church lands and the clergy. And in those congregation members, a part of their churches, there was a massive demand for their authority, uh, for their for their standards to be high morally. And so the only way they could do that is, in different things was one to challenge, as we'll see, to challenge the authority of these secular rulers, but also to start enforcing their authority over the bishops and churches. Like I said, there there was a respect um, that the papacy had. But there was not, in a sense, absolute power that the papacy had over these bishops um, that could be exercised. And so the pope is going to seek to utilize and develop its apostolic authority over the bishops and churches in the West. So some of the things that uh, that are addressed that, that these different leaders uh, seek to reform is one is simony, the selling of church offices, which makes sense. You're a local landowner. You have this church built. You know, why not sell the position off to the highest bidder? You get some money back. They get the position to manage the land. Um, and usually in cases, they might be a wealthy individual anyway. So it works. Scratch my back, scratch yours. Um, so there's really nothing to lose. The problem, you know, the problem is, once again, the church has no control over that process of the bishop. And so seeks to to counteract that by by passing uh, canon laws opposing the use of simony or the selling of church offices. It also seeks to combat uh, marriages and sexual morality within the church. There is still a problem with priests because, remember, these uh, these clergymen, these priests held political offices as well as counts, dukes, and lords themselves. And so it wasn't uncommon that they would you know, conduct mass on Sunday and manage lands and property and drink in the tavern on Monday. So there wasn't there wasn't the the congregation clearly saw this. And so, you know, they would have their mistresses and their wives and such. And so there was a problem there. But another problem, too, was with these uh, clergymen being married. Uh, remember, hundreds of years before, with the rise of the monastic movement, celibacy became a commonplace in the clergy because more and more of these monks were being drawn into these clerical offices. And so celibacy began to be something that was required and expected by clergymen. Um, not not so in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and in some ways uh, not enforced in other churches in the West, like the English Church didn't enforce it until they were conquered by the Normans uh, with uh, King William I. 
but uh, so there was a sense of wanting to enforce celibacy with that, but also another reason to enforce celibacy was to prevent the passing of church offices and lands to your successor. If you have all these sons, your oldest son obviously is going to receive some sort of property or compensation. Maybe if you're the local lord, um, you're you're the the clerk, you're the you're the bishop of your territory. At the same time, a lord of your territory, one son can get the lordship, the other ter- son can get your bishop office and lands that go with it. And so they're trying to present, prevent hereditary control because the last thing you want is dynastic control over these lands and properties that are tied to the church as well. So besides targeting celibacy and targeting simony, another thing they began to target is the uh, elections of the popes. Because of the chaos of these Roman aristocratic families, uh, they reform the process of how the Pope is chosen. And this is where we see it today with the Lateran Council, the, the group appointment of different cardinals to not only assist and help uh, manage the affairs of the papacy, but also to um, to elect that Pope as well. So in 1059, they reform the process of how the Pope is elected to guarantee the security of these cardinals and the protection of the Lateran Council that chooses the Pope. They ally themselves with the Normans who settled in southern Italy and Sicily as a form of military protection for themselves. So that way they can enforce and uh, enforce that election as well. So we see this first step in re- reforming the papacy into the way we know it today with the use of the Lateran Council choosing uh, the next bishop of Rome. There is, like I said, increased inform- enforcement of clerical celibacy. Really, it still becomes a problem until the really the fourth Lateran Council. It does. It's a constant thorn in the side of the church of dealing with celibacy. It won't truly be addressed um, until that fourth Lateran Council, but it's a constant thorn in the side of the church nonetheless. So with the election of Hildebrand to the papacy in 1073, he becomes Pope Gregory VII, which is why we call it the Gregorian Reforms or the Hildebrandian Reforms, whichever one you prefer. But he is, without doubt, one of those pivotal figures in the history of the Roman Catholic Church and the Western Church as a whole. Next to uh, Pope Innocent III, these these two are probably the, the top two individuals of the Middle Ages of, of transforming the church and shaping the church. Um, Gregory VII uh, was, was kind of a short man, um, but he had very strong zeal and will, um, very focused, piercing eyes. Um, his friend Bishop Damiani called him a holy Satan, uh, which could be taken as a compliment, I guess. Um, but his skill was as a master manipulator. He was a he was politically minded. He was um, in that he knew how to manipulate allies and opponents to work the way he wanted them to work. Um, so he had definitely had skill, and it was placed in the right position to manage the affairs of the church. One of the things that uh, that he saw, one of his particular viewpoint was that the church shouldn't just be independent, but the church should have absolute control over the entirety of affairs of, of Europe and of the, of the world in itself. He saw the world divided between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. In a sense, the secular kingdoms uh, by these rulers were the kingdom of darkness, and they were oppressing these, these peasants and, these, and the poor uh, through their tyranny, through the rule of their darkness, and that the church is the light, and the church should not be under the authority of the kingdom of darkness, but should be above and beyond it, uh, and so should f- seek to free um, these oppressed people and bring them within to the church as a church uh, itself. And so that was his particular mindset, his particular focus. So he had a zeal for this, um, 
and you know he could be uncompromising uh, on doctrines that he viewed as significantly important. Uh, but what's interesting is that there are times uh, where he was compromising on things that he didn't think really affected the church as a whole that he viewed as minor issues. And we'll see an example later on. Um, he also begins to transform the use of the term the pilgrim church to the church militant, uh, which is a term that we see still used today, is that the church is a church militant, the, the kind of this military fighting church. Um, and we see that really established in with, when we look at the next lecture and we talk about the Crusades as well. Now, one of the things that Gregory VII passes is the Papal Decree of 1075. And what this does is this asserts um, the uh, church authority as a supreme authority. So kind of give an example is that I'm listing off a few things here from, uh, from this decree, this Papal Decree in 1075, is that the Roman church was founded by God alone. Only the Roman Pope is rightly called universal. Um, the Pope can depose and reestate bishops. Um, the Pope may depose emperors. The Pope may call ecumenical councils without, uh, no, no ecumenical councils can be called without the Pope's authority. The Pope may be judged by no one. The Roman church has never erred and it shall never err to all eternity. The, the Roman papacy is sanctified by the merits of St. Peter. And he who is not in conformity with the Roman church should not be compared, uh, should not be considered a Catholic. So there are different, um, so all these different things uh, are not necessarily new. Everybody in some way and sense understood these things, but they were never enforced. But now with uh, Gregory, Pope Gregory VII, they now start having teeth added to them. There's papal legates, legates that go uh, across to these different kingdoms, these different uh, clergy lands, uh, the different uh, monasteries, and they began to add these, this papal decree, to laws to have them enforced uh, to make sure that they are being followed. So now we start seeing the enforcement of these ideals uh, and the increasing spiritual power of the, the Bishop of Rome of the papacy over the affairs of Western Christendom. Where everything kind of comes to a head is with that lay investiture. Uh, like I talked about earlier, the power to appoint bishops um, is important. Because it's not only just important uh, appointing a figurehead, uh, but it's also appointing someone who has control over those lands that tie with that office. So the lands hold military and economic power. Whoever controls them, controls the military forces on them, controls the economic wealth produced on them. So if it's the state that controls them, they hold the power and the wealth. If it's the church that controls them, they hold the power and the wealth. So whoever has to empower to appoint bishops to this particular those particular offices has the has the power. So, like I said, the Gregorian reformers are seeking to create the independence of the church against the state, and to do so, they have to uh, to crush the lay investiture. So. Uh, Pope Gregory the Seventh kind of goes for broke in that he decides that the the only figure that he can target that will submit church authority and church power is the Holy Roman Emperor. The Emperor is the most powerful figure in Europe to to uh, take away his lay investiture and and give it to the church and give especially to the Bishop of Rome will therefore submit his power and therefore submit the independency of the church. Uh, so in 1075. He decrees against Emperor Henry the Fourth 
that he did that Emperor Henry the Fourth did not have the power of lay investiture. So Pope, uh, so Holy Roman Emperor Henry the Fourth was a strong military ruler. Uh, but the problem was is that he was known for his tyranny and his adulteries, and he was fighting a civil war taking place within his empire. Uh, and the German church actually backed him with uh, with this decree uh, uh, against him. So the German church, the German bishops, came to Henry IV's support against Gregory VII uh, because the, the bishops and the church in Germany realized that the only way to have a stable government is by backing Henry IV. And so Henry IV was able to put down the Civil War um, and turn his attention to Gregory VII and and saying, you know, kind of bringing up the old tradition of the emperors really the ones have the power to appoint bishops of Rome and you really have no authority and I depose you. He forms a council of worms in 1076 to condemn Hildebrand, to condemn Gregory VII. And so Gregory VII or Hildebrand really goes for broke again and decides to escalate it to the highest highest point and that he immediately excommunicates Henry the fourth saying that he is no longer part of the church. He is outside the church. He has no, and no one owes him any obligation as well. He also interdicts all the lands that Henry the fourth owns. So everybody who, all the peasants, everybody who lives on the lands of Henry the fourth can no longer receive mass, which by this point was significant because that was tied in with receiving uh, grace and so without receiving the mass, you couldn't receive the grace. And so if you die, you could be eternally bound for hell. So there was a spiritual component too with this excommunication. When this happened, when Hild- when Hildebrand excommunicated Henry IV, Henry IV immediately lost support of the German church. The German bishops turned against Henry IV and supported Hildebrand. Because of this, all the lands that the German bishops controlled, uh, which had the army and the wealth, immediately turned over to Gregory VII, and Henry IV lost control and access to all of them. And so he lost access to his army. And so the German nobles once again saw another opportunity to instigate a civil war. And so now the civil war was on and Henry IV was losing. So Henry IV had no other choice but to come to uh, Gregory VII and ask for repentance and forgiveness. So in the middle of winter, he travels to Canossa, Italy, in the snow with his wife and children, uh, finds uh, finds Gregory the Seventh and outside his door for three days, asks for forgiveness and for repentance. Um, now Gregory the Seventh can't say no; he's kind of obligated to say yes. So it is a, a win for Henry the Fourth that he's gonna. He knows Hildebrand has to give in, um, but Gregory the Seventh is going to make him requ- require of him something for him to give receive repentance and forgiveness and to remove that excommunication. So uh, Gregory VII comes out on the third day and says, I will forgive you, but you must no longer hold power of lay investiture. And so Henry IV immediately gives up the power and the authority of lay investiture. The church has now won and triumphed over the state. However, the uh, and uh, Gregory VII does remove the excommunication against him. However, the, the Civil War continues to rage on against Henry IV. Now, what's interesting, it's one of those terms where, uh, where unfortunately, Hildebrand or Gregory VII uh, overreaches. As the Pope, he decides that maybe Henry IV, because Henry IV is kind of in this the stalemate for so long that, because the Civil War has been going on for three years by this point, 
that maybe having him removed isn't such a bad idea um, and having somebody else as emperor wouldn't be uh, such a bad option. So he once again excommunicates Henry IV, expecting the German bishops to back him again. Uh, the German bishops this time oppose the Pope and support uh, Henry IV and continue to support Henry IV. Henry IV wins the wins the Civil War and now turns his total attention onto, onto Hildebrand, onto Gregory VII. He marches his army and captures Rome in 1084. Uh, before that, Hildebrand flees to southern Italy with his Nor- with the Norman protectors, um, and they, they kind of live in southern Italy. And so what you have now is two factions appear, because, pope, uh, because Henry IV, as emperor, appoints another pope. He appoints Clement III as, as the new pope. However... Um, Hildebrand still lives, and uh, when he dies, his fellow reformers who fled with him uh, form and appoint another pope. So you have the traditional pope, and you have the reforming party pope. And so in this in Western Christendom now, you have two popes in, in contradiction to one another. Now, eventually over time, the reforming party wins out, and you have the return of the reformers under Pope Urban II in 1088. But we saw here, once again, another division taking place. And you're going to see this constantly uh, where politics play a role in still having the church split among different uh, leaders and bishops of Rome. Now, because of this overreach, um, there's still the issue of lay lay, uh, investiture. And so uh, because of the victory of Henry IV, it reestablishes his authority over investing uh, the clerical offices and bishops. Finally, there's a solution. There's a set, there's a settlement at the Council of Worms in 1122, which seeks to resolve this whole issue altogether. And it's a compromise. So they split the investiture between the, the Bishop of Rome and the secular rulers. And this is actually already defined with France in 1106 and England in 1107. So it's already been in practice in those countries, but now it becomes the official norm by 1122 with the Council of Worms that the uh, the Bishop of Rome can make the appointments and can invest that individual with the spiritual uh, authority over the office. Now, the, the kings, the secular rulers, can rubber stamp uh, those appointments and invest the offices in lands that come with that, uh, would come with that position. And so you see kind of the splitting of that investiture. So it's a compromise, which I don't think uh, Hildebrand or Gregory VII, the Pope, would have exactly supported. But nonetheless, the key takeaway from this inflay investiture controversy is that it does cement the power of the papacy over the affairs of uh, medieval Europe, over the affairs of the state. This is a, there's an acknowledgement that the Pope has power over the bishops, that the Pope is the spiritual head of the church, the leader of the church, can pass canon laws that can enforce these laws to among the bishops, among the different levels of clergy, and has the tying with those different monastic orders now as well. So now there's a sense that the papacy is really the true figurehead of the true power of the church in uh, in Western uh, Christendom. Now, within this lay investiture controversy, there's also another side controversy that takes a, that, that takes place, and that is the Eucharist controversy. We saw this in the ninth century with uh, Radbertus and Retrainus. They were arguing the same points that we see here. Is the bread and wine, does the bread and wine uh, become the physical body and blood of Christ, or is it just spiritual in manner? 
Um, Berengar of Tours argues that the bread and wine uh, have the spiritual presence of Christ's body and blood. They do not physically change in any way. He's opposed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Len Frank, uh, who argues for the more popular position at this point, the physical transformation of the bread and wine. And so this causes a consternation within uh, within the, the church. Um, prior to Hildebrand being pope, he was bishop at the time, uh, he supported his friend Berengar of Tours and tried to kind of protect him. Uh, but Tours was brought to trial uh, in 1054. Hildebrand really didn't, and this is one of those things where Hildebrand sought to compromise on this issue because really to him, both sides were acceptable. They really weren't in contradiction to each other in, in Hildebrand's viewpoint. And he tries to protect Berengar of Tours, but Berengar uh, unfortunately has to recant of his position, in which he does. He accepts, he, you know, he survives the trial by recanting of his position. But over time, he changes his mind and begins to, to revoke his recantation, denounce those who tried him, and support his viewpoint on the Eucharist once again. This time, Hildebrand is Pope, Gregory VII, and the council is brought before Rome in 1079. Pope Gregory VII tries to once again come to bat for his friend Berengar, tries to protect him, uh, but the Council of Rome condemns Berengar Tours and has him recant on his position once more. All this does is solidify the popularity and the growing popularity of the physical transformation of the body of the bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. Doctrinally, it wouldn't it won't be submitted until the understanding of transubstantiation by uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. But now it's really the more popular viewpoint across medieval Europe. It's the accepted viewpoint uh, by most, uh, by many Christians and by many uh, clergymen at this point. Another point of controversy, too, is uh, the court system. Back to Constantine, um, Constantine allowed bishops to try legal cases. And so we had, you had after Constantine, in a sense, you had a civil court and a, and a church court. Uh, throughout these different kingdoms. So this dual system of courts existed in every uh, European, Western European Christian nation. All clergymen could not be tried in a civil court. They could only be tried in a church court uh, for their crimes. Now, this wasn't necessarily a problem at the beginning, but it became a very huge problem for a multitude of different reasons. One is that it involved the minor positions of a church office. So like a novice or a porter. Um, so, you know, so these minor positions in church offices guaranteed you instant protection within the church courts and the church courts can be extremely biased in protecting their own. So if you commit a serious crime, you couldn't be tried in civil court, but you could receive a small fine in a church court. So it was, it was a problem for these rulers and these lords to manage the affairs of their lands and provide some sort of stability if these clergymen were always getting away with something. Um, and, you know, the abuse and corruption that naturally takes place because of this. Uh, and so a lot of the rule, different rulers sought ways to try to curb the power and influence of these church courts. One in particular was the English king, King Henry II. He wanted to provide a sense of stability for um, for his kingdom and managing the power and authority of these church courts, uh, because there's no way to bring a, a clergy member to trial in a civil court unless they are removed from their priesthood, which goes against the sacrament of ordination. So that's kind of a catch-22, ultimately, that protects these the priests from being tried in these civil courts. 
So when the arch- position of Archbishop of Canterbury comes up, his friend Thomas Beckett gets that position. He hopes that with Thomas Beckett being in that office, it might help better solidify his power over the church courts and maybe he can manipulate to his favor. But Thomas Beckett is only looking out for Thomas Beckett and doesn't go along with King Henry II, which upsets King Henry II. And so in a fit of rage, you know, he asks, will someone get rid of this troublesome priest for me? His knights overhear this request and seek to desire to fulfill the request of their king and immediately execute Thomas Beckett in a church by having a skull bashed in. This was a huge, uh, huge news across Europe, like Princess Diana dying kind of news. It was a massive uproar and upset across Europe over the actions of these knights against the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, Pope Alexander III uh, demanded the king do penance to be absolved of his crimes and his involvement with the death of Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett became an instant martyr, and his site became a site of pilgrimage for the next hundreds of years. Uh, and the King Henry II actually was flogged for his actions. He had to be whipped for his actions and involvement in the death of Thomas Becket. But this submits, once again, the power of the medieval church over the power of the medieval state. So it's another win and another victory is cementing that authority um, and that shaping authority that we'll see for the next couple hundred years. We also see development, like I said, from the Cluniac reforms and the zeal and desire and ideal Christian life. We see the rise of spiritual writings uh, from these different mystics and different uh, uh, different uh, leaders in the monastic movement as well. So just looking at touching on a few here, you have, for example, Hugh of St. Victor, um, who was uh, in the uh, who attended an abbey. In Paris, he was the director of theological studies there. He was a great supporter of Augustinian theology. One of his most important works that come down to us today is the moral or mystic arc of Noah that helps uh, deal with uh, swirling thoughts and desires, waves, so to speak, How do you how, and how to build a life of virtue, an arc of wisdom, so to speak, uh, this moral arc, and how do you build it with the central tenets of your faith uniting in the love of God. Then you have the Richard uh, Richard of St. Victor, also the same abbey uh, in Paris, uh, a little later in time period. He taught that uh, since God is love, that also in terms require God to be a trinity, that God, uh, this inner, inner trinitarian love must exist if God is love. He also taught strict moral obedience and that everything should be tested against scripture. Now, there was also Hildegard of, of of Bingen. She was um, a an uh, abbess of a, con- of a Benedictine convent um, who constantly received visions from God and wrote down these visions. Uh, she was, a, in a sense, a prolific writer. Um, she wrote many different hymns, biographies, and things that she, the kind of uh, natural science and seeing the things around her with different creatures and trees and such. Um, but she became very popular. Her writings were well spread and, and read across Western Europe um, and influenced a lot of different Christian thinking at both the laity and the aristocrats. Um, she was popular among kings in Europe who sought audience with her to gain advice from her. Um, she went on preaching tours across Western Europe as well. Uh, so she had a very significant influence Um she argued that salvation can only be found in Christ and shouldn't be found in priests or in ceremonies. Uh, but uh, her visions, like I said, are writing still, you can buy at Christian bookstores today. They're still popular. They're still and still read. 
And then finally, we see the development of musical instruments and worship. Musical instruments really did not exist in the early church, um, but we really start seeing them used later on. In the Eastern church, they're not used at all, just like I mentioned in the last lecture. Uh, but by the 8th century, what we start seeing used is things like harps and violins and organs being used. But their primary purpose uh, is to set the tunes for the choir for, to sing. Um, the Gregorian chant is still the popular form of singing. It's eventually replaced with part singing, which requires uh, you to, you know, say, uh, I believe to say different words on a, uh, different words on the same tune or the same words on the different tune, something like that. And the organs help set the tune to mark where you need to sing. But organs become increasingly more popular. They eventually start used in mass. Um, and then eventually they're used in festivals. And so by the 14th and 15th centuries, they become widespread in their usage across many different cathedrals and abbeys and local churches. Um, and so they become a critical part of worship in the liturgy in Western Christendom, and therefore solidifying another difference between Eastern and Western uh, churches. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I uh, hope you learned something, and hopefully I'll see you guys soon, and we'll look, continue to look through the uh, history of the church through the Middle Ages.